Good morning, Graham Emanuel Baptist Church. Is God with us? Amen. So this may be your first Sunday here this morning. We do say welcome to you. But the reason why I start out with that before every message is because our name, Graham Emanuel, is also part of our purpose. Emmanuel means God with us, and the church is the body of Christ. We believe that God came to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. He died for sinners, rose on the third day, and today he impacts the world through the church being his hands and feet. So we want God to be present in Graham. And so in order to make God present and powerful and known in Graham, we as the church come together to worship him, to praise him, to obey him, and to tell people about what Jesus has done. So that's why uh, we say that before our sermon, because our name, Graham Emanuel, also is a reminder of why we exist. We're going to continue our time of worship. I don't want you to think that we have ended our worship time just because we have stopped with the music. We are going to continue to worship because worship means to praise God, to give God what is due of him. And we are also called to do that not just through singing, but through reflecting and learning and applying his word. And that's actually how we're going to worship throughout the week, by what we hear in God's word, hearing it and obeying it as we go to the different places where God has situated us in life. So are you all ready to continue to worship? Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship and let's pray now that God will work through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us as a church. You've given us so many resources. You've given us friends and family. You've given us opportunities to proclaim you, to share your word, and to make your love known in practical ways. Lord, I pray for every single individual here this morning, whether they have attended Graham Emanuel for 20 years, or whether this is the first time that they have stepped through these doors, that all of us will know you better as a result of what you have revealed in your word. That each and every one of us, by faith, will make a decision to trust in you more, to follow you more, and to depend on the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, more as our hope in this life and in the life to come. And we pray this in the name of your living son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In a recent poll that was put out by Gallup, it was found that 81% of Americans claim to believe in God. Now, that number is actually lower by 6% than what it was the last time this question was asked in 2017 when it was 87% of people claiming to have a belief in God. There's other polls that actually rank even higher. USA Today, they asked a similar question to Americans asking whether they believed in God or a higher power. 96% of Americans claimed to believe in some kind of God or some kind of higher power, whether it was the God of the Bible or not. What's even more amazing is that in that same poll, 72% of people believed not only that there is a heaven, but that they themselves are going to heaven. 72%. 
I want you to just reflect on that based on how you perceive our country today, what you see in the news, what you see from secular culture, what you know from your unsaved coworkers. Over 90% of them claim to believe in some kind of God, and they believe that this God, whoever he is, is going to allow them into heaven wherever that may be. The reason why we share this is because it's often tempting to think that we live in a society that has become uncomfortable with God, where really we live in a society that has become too comfortable with God. We don't live in a world that openly rejects God. We live in a world that more subtly assumes that God, whoever he is, is somehow okay with them. And we see that play out not just in the way that non-Christians live, but I believe even in how Christians live. For non-Christians, it's obvious. They assume that there's some God up there, and they assume that probably they will be okay with this God after death, so they live the way that they want to live. They define truth for themselves. They live their life the way that they want. They make the decisions that they want to do. They live an all-around self-centered life based on the comfort of assuming that God is somehow okay with that. I think Christians can make this same mistake of being too comfortable with God, where maybe they say a prayer of salvation when they're five years old, and for the rest of their life, they live a life basically doing what they want to do. They try to go to church every now and then just so that their kids turn out okay and to make their spouse happy. Maybe they have some friends who go to church, so they have a social community there, and they appreciate that about church. Maybe they come on Christmases and Easter's, and they figure that's, well, probably good enough because they know, well, after all, God loves me. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. Therefore, based on these assumptions of how we define love and grace, even many Christians will live their Christian life not in obedience, not in trust, but in assumption that they are okay with God. And I want each and every one of you, as we get ready to open God's Word this morning, to think about your relationship with God. Because often you've probably heard it said that Christianity is a religion or is a relationship, not a religion. And that's ridiculous. Because everybody, everybody has a relationship with God. The question is, is what kind of relationship is it? That's what we need to consider. And that's what each and every one of you needs to consider this morning, is not whether or not you have a relationship with God, because plenty of us will say that. But what kind of relationship do you have with God? That's going to be what Paul talks about this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He's going to talk about the kind of relationship that all people have by default with God. And in doing so, he's then going to continue to talk about the kind of relationship that we can have with God based on what Jesus has done for us. So turn with me to Colossians. Colossians is near the end of your Bible. I call it one of the Ian books because it's right tucked in there with Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. 
Don't go too far or you'll you'll end up in Hebrews or Revelation. If so, turn back. If you're in one of the Gospels, keep going. You're almost there. This is a letter. It's not just a book of the Bible. It's a letter that Paul has written to a group of Christians in an ancient city called Colossae. And over the past month, we've been paying special attention to verses 15 to 20. We call this the Christian hymn or the hymn of Christ. Number one, because it was likely sung during the early church age, but also because these lyrics in verses 15 and 20 are all about Jesus. If you were to do a quick scan of those verses, you would find that again and again, the subject of every verse is Christ. But that hymn is now over, and now this morning in verse 21, we are transitioning to the next section of the letter where Paul makes a stunning change of subject. Because you'll notice in verses 15 and 20, again and again, we see the word Christ, Christ, Christ. This is who he is. This is what he's done. But look at how verse 21 begins. Paul now pivots. He shifts the focus. He moves the spotlight off of Christ, and he now puts it on you. That's how verse 21 begins. He says, and you. Do you know that in preaching today, there is actually a controversy over whether or not pastors should use the word you in their sermons? The way that the debate will go is that by pastors preaching and using the word you, that that is too confrontational, that that makes people feel uncomfortable that by looking at a congregation and saying you, that that will push people off and make them uh, unattracted to the idea of the Bible or the gospel. I guess the Apostle Paul never went to those preaching classes. Because in verse 21, now based on what he has said about Christ, he is now demanding that the Colossians now think about themselves and who they are in comparison to Christ. And he is asking the same of us today, here in this room, right now, 2023. He is asking you to consider who you are and what your relationship with God is. Look at what he has to say in verse 21. This is how he describes the Colossians before they were saved. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The first heading that you see on your notes for this morning is that you, you must know, based on what Paul is saying here in verse 21, that you are an enemy of God because of your sin. Each and every one of you, myself included, you have been born into this world by default an enemy of God. Not neutral, not someone who is on the fence 50-50, could go good, could go bad. Each and every one of us, we come into this world inheriting from Adam, who sinned in the garden, inheriting a status, but also an identity 
as one who is an enemy of God. This is what Paul means when he uses the word alienated. You might see in your copy of Scripture, whether on your phone or on your personal copy of the Bible, you might have the word estranged. This is the same kind of word that was used by Jews to talk about Gentiles. It was the same kind of word used by Jews to talk about Samaritans. Paul is saying that the way that Jewish people think about Samaritans is the way that a holy God thinks about you because of your sin. That you also are estranged, that you are alienated from God. In the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, Paul says that you were once alienated. That doesn't mean that there was like this momentary time of sin. Paul's not referring to this one single status or, or time in your life where you happen to be sinning more than other times. He's talking specifically about you in your former life. He's talking to the saved Colossians at this point. He's saying that you formerly would be a better way of understanding this. You were formerly estranged from God. And not just were you formally estranged from God, but the grammar that Paul is using is similar to what he uses in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, where he famously says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The powerful grammar that he's using is that he's using an active participle. He's saying, while you were being a sinner, not although you were a sinner, but in the very midst, at the same time while you were continuously in the act of sinning, Paul says that's when Christ died for you. That's exactly what Paul is doing again here in Colossians. He says, you, you not just were formally alienated at one time, you were continuously living a life as an enemy of God. You must understand that that is your status as a person outside of Christ in this world. Not just that you have a blank sheet of paper and you messed up a couple of times with a few marks at the bottom, but that your entire life is characterized by a continual habit of enmity and rebellion against God. Some of you might be thinking, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> I came here to church on Easter to hear about hope, to hear about goodness, to hear about how God loves me. Well, it's true that God loves us, and we're going to talk about hope, but we only can understand what hope is if we properly understand what the problem is. And true hope we're going to find is going to be found in Jesus, but only because there is a true problem that needs to be solved, and that problem is your sin. You might also be thinking, well, this is unfair. I was born with a bad hand of cards, that it wasn't my fault that I entered in this world being a sinner, and I didn't ask to have a sin nature. Why is it fair that I come into this world already starting off as one who is continuously in rebellion against God? And I understand why you might think that, but if that's so, let me challenge you and ask you this. Try to go the rest of today without sinning. You're not going to do it. As much as you may bemoan and say, well, this isn't fair. I didn't, I didn't ask to be born as one who is uh, in rebellion against God, one who is alienated from God. You sin because you want to. 
You commit sin because you desire it, because you see yourself as more important than others, because you seek your interests over the interests of others. At some point today, you're going to think bitterly about someone, or you're going to lose your temper, or you're going to have a lustful thought. There's going to be something that's going to make you decide to sin with no gun held up to your head. And the reason why you love to sin is because you have a nature of a sinner. A dog barks because it was born a dog. A cat meows because it was born a cat. And you sin because you are born a sinner. That's what Paul means when referring to the Colossians by saying that all of you formerly came into this life continuously being an active, habitual enmity or estrangement to God. So you must know that your relationship with God outside of Christ is one of an enemy. If you think that you've lived a basically good life and that God is okay with you and and that you and God are basically on good terms, I'm telling you that Paul in Colossians 1.21 is saying the opposite, that you are not on good terms with God that you have a relationship with God that is similar and even greater to the kind of estranged relationship that you have with a sibling or a spouse or a coworker, or maybe even someone that you go to church with. We all know what it's like to have relationships with people that are broken and estranged, the uncomfortableness of that. We know what that feels like. That is just a small example of the true estrangement that we feel with God because of our status and nature and habitual sin. Paul goes on in verse 21 to describe two ways in which we do that. He says that we are alienated from God, being hostile in mind, number one, and also doing evil deeds. If you are not living a life that is in faithful dependence on Christ for your salvation, your thoughts, even if you may not think that they are consistently evil, are still thoughts that are estranged from God because they are thoughts that are focused on yourself. That people may think that, well, yeah, I love God in my own way. Loving God in your own way is loving yourself in your own way. And it's using God as a way to put balm over that so other people will accept it and think that it's noble. But it's really just a love for self. He also says that we are estranged from God, not just in hostile thoughts. Put focus on that word, by the way, hostile. We see here in the poll that over 90% of Americans believe in a higher power or even in God himself. Well, Paul says that all of those people, they are hostile in their mind and in their thinking towards God because of their sin. Even if they think they can claim him, even if they think that they believe in him, that still doesn't change the fact that because they are sinners, they are hostile towards him. And then finally, of course, what flows out of our thoughts, what comes out of our attitudes, we see actions flow out of our thoughts, and they flow out of our attitudes. So all of this paints a very bleak picture, doesn't it? That we all have a problem that we all have an issue in this world, and that issue is not other people's sin, it's your own sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul quotes from one of the Psalms and says that God looked out and said, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
Not a single person who seeks God. Even if people claim to seek God, they're doing it in their own way, which ultimately means that they are seeking themselves. Again, you're asking, why are we focusing so much on sin? Other churches don't do this. Why are we focusing so much? That wasn't meant to be a joke, but I understand your laughter. Because we know, don't we? We know the kind of Christianity that is popular in Western Washington and in America as a whole, one that puts you front and center and makes you feel better. It's okay. God loves you. And instead of pointing to the sickness, the tumor that is terminal in all of us that God wants to remove, That's what we need to talk about today. It's like when you look at jewelry at a jewelry store, you can't appreciate the brightness of the gemstones if not put in front of a very dark, dark velvet backdrop. That's what this is in verse 21, the velvet backdrop of the problem that makes the hope of Easter truly hope. Because now, let's go to verse 22. Because Paul is now focusing, he's told the Colossians to remember their status before God as his enemies. But now in verse 22, this is what he has to say. Paul says that he, being Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the solution to our sin is only one thing. There's only one thing that can be done to a tumor, and that's to cut it out. There's only one thing that can be done to a disease, which is to kill it. The only solution to your sin is death. The question is, is who's going to take that death? Paul says in verse 22 that the sin in your life, in your body, that could only be solved by a holy God by killing you, God fixes by killing Jesus instead. That's what we mean when we say reconciliation. Reconciliation means a restored relationship. It's the opposite of the word that we see in verse 21 for alienation. If alienation means that we are drifting apart, two similar magnets that are repulsing each other, reconciliation is the bringing together of two things that were once formally apart. That doesn't happen by you deciding that you're going to try a little bit harder. That doesn't happen by you deciding to believe that, well, I guess there's a God after all. That's not even you being reconciled by deciding that you're going to start attending church. The only way you can have a restored relationship with God is if your sin is killed. And God did that by killing your sin in the body of Jesus. So the sinful words that you have spoken, and you know what those words are, and even if other people don't know what some of those words have been, God knows Those words that your lips have spoken in sin, God sowed those words on Jesus' lips. Those evil things that your hands have done, those inappropriate things, those unkind things, those evil things that your hands have done, God sowed those things on Jesus' hands. The bad places that you have gone to, the bad company that you have kept, 
the wrong places where you have sought for the wrong things, God saw that on Jesus' feet, and he killed him. And he killed him for you. He killed him because that's what you deserved. That's what your hands should have suffered. That's what your feet should have suffered. That's what your lips should have suffered. But God decided that instead of punishing your sin in your body, he was going to look on the innocent, righteous body of Jesus and put your sin on him and treat Jesus as a result. This is why in Isaiah 53, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush his innocent son because on his innocent son was the sins that you and I have committed. In order for there to be a restored relationship with God, a price has to be paid. The fee has to be doled out. The punishment has to be given. And God, by his grace, decided that he would put your sin on the body of Jesus himself in order that he may absorb the wrath of God that was deserving of you for your sinfulness. This deepens the power of the cross because it turns the cross into something more than just a knight laying down his life for a damsel in distress, more than a soldier jumping on a grenade for his comrades. It's deeper than just a noble showing of sacrifice It's Christ himself being made sin who knew no sin for you and for me. And all of a sudden, the word you becomes much more attractive, doesn't it? Christ died for you. God loves you and sent his son to die for you. That's why that word you is so important because the you that convicts us of our sinfulness is also the you that points us to our forgiveness in Jesus. We must understand that for those who have put their trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, it's not that just that Jesus died to show his love for us. It's deeper than that. Christ died in place of us in our sinful nature that was alienated from God also died with Jesus. Let me show you some verses that prove that. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. By sending Jesus in flesh, that gave God the opportunity to look at your flesh and put it on Jesus's, and therefore condemn it and kill it. We see other verses that say similar things. Romans chapter 6 says this. Paul writes that we know that our old self that was alienated from God was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's no way to solve the problem of sin without death. The problem is is that is your death going to be eternal in hell? Or is your death going to be at the cross with Jesus? You have to choose where the death for your sin is going to occur. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 makes it very clear that the death for sin that we need to pay can happen vicariously in the place of Jesus. Which means that our second point is this. That Christ took your sin and died as an enemy of God. That's what's being described here. 
That's why it's important to see that Paul is describing our sin as being in the body of Christ. That it's in his flesh that absorbs the wrath that our sin deserves. And the incredible thing is that actually this language of being crucified with Christ, of dying in Christ, being reconciled in his body, that's the same word and vocabulary that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 53. Most of us, we understand Isaiah 53 verse 5 to say that by his wounds we are healed. You've probably heard that verse before. It's actually in his wounds we are healed. In his wounds, by sharing in his death, by his wounds absorbing the sin of what our flesh has committed, we as a result receive righteousness. And the only way we can die and go to this heaven that all people apparently claim to believe in and stand before this God that over 90% of Americans claim to believe exists, the only way we can stand before him in heaven and have a right relationship with him is if we ask him to consider us in light of who Jesus is. To look to God and say, look at Christ's righteousness and see that as my own because I can't do it. Look at Christ's death for sin and see that as my death for sin because I can't suffer it. Jesus is the only means by which we can have a restored relationship to God. By his brokenness, we can have healing. By breaking his relationship with God on the cross, he restores our relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. That is our big idea for this morning. that Christ's broken body repaired our relationship with God. Not just by believing that God exists, not just by being open to the idea of God, not just being Christian adjacent, not by being in a family that is typically Christian and when you go for holidays, grandma always prays and you bow your head in politeness. None of those things mean that you have a right relationship with God. In fact, you have a very hostile, anti-relationship with God. The only way you can have reconciliation in a restored relationship is by trusting in and depending on the brokenness of Christ on the cross on your behalf. And this can only be received by faith. You may be listening this morning and you say, Pastor Stephen, I want this. I want to believe in this. I want to follow this. I want to accept this. I want to benefit from this. You may be realizing that this morning that you, in fact, do, despite what you assumed, you do actually have a broken relationship with your creator and that you want to make it right. Let me tell you that everything that we talked about this morning, Christ's death on your behalf, his wounds healing you, your sin being put on him and receiving the punishment that you deserved, that reconciliation can only be received by faith. That means that if you want to receive the benefit of that reconciliation from Christ on the cross, you must call out to God and admit that you are a sinner and tell him that you are choosing to trust in and follow his son Jesus Christ in your place who died for your sin and rose on the third day and that you want to have a new life in him and not just share in his death but also share in his resurrection because that's the beauty of the resurrection. If we died with Christ, we also get to be raised with Christ. We get to become new people. 
We get to be born again. And if you're here and you have been going to Graham for 20 years and you are living as one who does not reflect a risen life, it doesn't matter how many times you come to church and say that he is risen indeed, your actions deny him. And your actions communicate that there is a Christ who never rose from the grave because you are living a life as a so-called Christian that is still acting dead. And your call as a believer this morning is to live a life of continual faithfulness that continually recognizes that we must die to sin and live a new life in God in dependence on Christ and the Holy Spirit that supplies that power in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here this morning that needs to do that, that needs to recognize and call out to you and admit their estranged relationship with you, that they will do that this morning, that they will recognize their need to repent, to turn away from their life of sin, and to trust and depend on your son, Jesus Christ, who died in their place and who rose in their place, and that we can have hope, Lord. We can have hope of new life because of the death that your son suffered for us. Lord, I pray that you will convict hearts to do that this morning and that we will be able to follow up with them. I also pray for those of us who are already believers that we will be convicted to live a life of faithfulness that continually rests in the gospel by dying to sin and living in dependence of your spirit for new life to let your fruit be produced in us so that we can proclaim and show the power of your resurrection by us ourselves living a new life. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the living Jesus. Amen.